This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Michael Sells begins his book about the Quran with an anecdote from Cairo. The streets of the noisy, bustling city are suddenly strangely quiet. Yet the cafes are crowded with people, Muslims and Christians alike, clustered around televisions. They've been drawn indoors by the appearance of one of Egypt's popular Quran reciters. This recitation, or the sound of the Quran, is something that has captivated Professor Sells since his student days in North Africa. For him, hearing the Quran is a critical part of understanding its meaning. Of course, that's how the Quran was revealed and how it was first communicated long before it was written down. And that's what led him to write what's become a foundational text on the subject called Approaching the Quran, the Early Revelations, in which he explores the role of sound in delivering God's message. I was teaching at Haverford College and I was teaching introduction to Islam and Islamic literature. And I found that when we read passages of the Quran in translation, I sensed that the students weren't really hearing some of the deeper messages that are important for the divine voice in the Quran. It gives the divine voice a sense of majesty and at the same time a speaking very intimately to the prophet and then through the prophet to each individual reader or hearer of the Quran. So what I started to do was to transliterate short passages of the Quran and to bring in tapes of Quran reciters reciting them. And the students said it really uh, was transformative to, uh, for their sense of what the Quran was about. So I decided there, what I really wanted to do was find a way of bringing that quality to a wider public beyond 15 or 20 students in a classroom. Professor Sells's book focuses on the short hymnic chapters or surahs, which are understood to be the first revelations to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his progeny. These are known as the Meccan surahs. The later surahs are known as the Medinan surahs and are more legalistic, as they were revealed when the Prophet had moved to Medina and was governing a community. Michael Sells is Professor Emeritus of Islamic History and also of Comparative Literature at the University of Chicago. His areas of specialization include Quranic studies, Sufism, and mystical literature across Greek, Islamic, Christian, and Jewish traditions. Professor Sells spoke to me from South Carolina. 
The book focuses on the first surahs that were revealed to the prophets. Now, these are not the surahs that people usually come across if they start to read the Quran from the beginning, because the Quran isn't arranged in the order that the surahs were revealed. Right. So uh, many of the surahs that reflect the time in Medina, when the prophet was also a head of state and a ruler, involve a very complex historical background. So without that, people pick up the Quran, and there are a lot of issues that the average reader who is unfamiliar with Islamic history is going to be very puzzled by. Many people told me they never got past the first long chapter of the Quran because it, they just couldn't understand what it was about. These early chapters, the first surahs that are believed to be revealed to the Prophet, they are straight to the mind and heart. Anyone can hear and read these surahs and understand what the message of these surahs is. So I wanted to focus on those. Why is the Quran ordered in this way? That's a very large question. I can't offer any special expertise, but I think the early Muslim community at the, around the time of the Caliph Uthman and before that, possibly with the help of the Prophet while he was still alive, wanted to start with those surahs addressing the community as a Muslim community that was already established and what their obligations were in the specific historical situation of the time. That's my general understanding. These early chapters offer the vision of a meaningful and just life. And the way the Quran says people should go about living such a life is by holding oneself accountable for every action. These passages uh, are centered on the theme of Yawm al-Din or Yawm al-Qiyamah, the day of reckoning or the day of resurrection. And they bring the entire rhetorical and emotional and intellectual force around very vivid evocations of the Almadine, and then direct questions to the human being, human beings in general and each human being, about how it will be for them on the day of judgment. And that sets up the moral and personal stakes involved in living a life, which according to these early surahs, in which every action is known and seen and heard by God and recorded. So I like to think of this as every action is seen and known in a way that even human beings don't know themselves, because the human self, the nefs, can deceive itself about its own, its own actions. So that sets up a sense of care, care for every action, for every thought. And the Quran usually focuses in these surahs on keeping the faith, on carrying out salahat, good actions, 
and on worshiping often in some ways as if every moment should be a kind of worship. There's a hadith that says, one should act as if one were seeing God in every act, and if even if one doesn't see God, knowing that God sees us in every action. Some of the behaviors that people are warned against include things like acquisitiveness, for example, because it distracts them from their own mortality. Yes, the Quran talks about the near life, the life of near satisfaction, the dunya. And it's trying to bring home the point that the near life is fleeting. And as you mentioned, it's easy to forget that. And get caught up in the gains and losses of the near life. That's why the Yalmadeen is so important. The notion of the Yalmadeen, which seems imminent within a certain context, focuses the reader on mortality and on why every moment in the fleeting life is precious because every moment in the fleeting life will be exposed to each person on that day. The rest of the episode continues in just a moment after this message. On behalf of the team at The Ismaili, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to Muslim Footprints. We very much hope you're enjoying this show and would be grateful if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more valuable content in the future. Now, back to the show. There are a number of big themes in these early chapters. One is this idea of unveiling this idea that on the day of reckoning, everything will be turned on its head. Let me just give an example. One of the examples I like to use is Surat al-Infitar. That's Surah 82. In the name of God, the compassionate, the caring. When the sky is torn, when the stars are scattered, when the seas are poured forth, when the tombs burst open, then a soul will know what it has given and what it has held back. O oh, human being, what has deceived you about your generous Lord, who created you and shaped you and made you right in whatever form he willed for you? So here's an example of that apocalyptic imagery and I'll just read it in Arabic. And even with my Arabic, I think the sound quality will come through. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ida sama'a unfatarat. 
وإذ القواكب انتثرت وإذ البحار فجرت وإذ القبور بؤطرت علمت نفس ما قدمت وأخرت يا أيها الإنسان ما غرك بربك الكريم الذي خلقك فسواك وأدلك في أي سورة ما شاء ركبا So the first four verses set up this cosmic unveiling where everything that seems solid is overthrown. And then it says that At that moment, every soul will know what it or she, it could be translated either way, what it has given and what it has had held back. So here's the fundamental teaching of generosity. Generosity across all spheres, giving the zakah, helping the poor and the the orphan and the stranger and contributing to the cause, living one's life, expending what one has uh, rather than hoarding it. And the theme becomes very powerful, both majestic and deeply personal, because these apocalyptic images have opened up a space in which this message can be communicated, as I say, straight to the mind and heart. And then There's a a long plaintive verse. Oh, human being, what has deluded you from your generous Lord? And that verse is in with long, drawn out sound patterns in contrast to the staccato sound patterns of the apocalyptic imagery. So it brings across a special personal voice from the divine to human beings and to each person. So that's how uh, the imagery and the metaphor works to create a both effective and affective rhetoric that I wanted to focus on in these early surahs. Another theme is this acceptance of a final accounting, the Yomadin, which we've talked about. And one last theme is polarities. This is a pattern in the Quran, especially these early surahs, where the Quran swears by the day and the night, the dawn and the dusk, the even and the odd, the male and the female. So our lives are filled with uh, these kind of polarities, and the Quran swears by them as uh, fundamental aspects of life. And there's one verse that says, by what created the male and the female? I think this verse makes it very clear that the uh, that Allah is is neither male nor female. Allah is the one that created male and female. Even though God can be presented with male imagery, it's, there's no male God within the Quran.
A few things really stood out for me while I was reading the book. The first is a particular translation of the word iman, which means faith. Professor Sells translates it not simply as faith, but as keeping the faith, which is much more active. So when we say, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, amanu being a variation of iman, I've always understood it to mean, O you who believe, basically just a call to the believers. So when you translate it that way, it seems like something you don't pay much attention to. And what's important is what comes after it, you know, what the message is. But with the way it's translated in the book, O you who keep the faith, suddenly it becomes a message in itself. You're saying, O you who keep the faith in spite of all the difficulties that life throws at you, who keep the faith by being just, by being generous, by being kind, etc. There's so much in that. Yes, I, I think the word believe in English has taken on a kind of passive quality. So you could say, I believe in this, and it doesn't require any particular actions, you know. And I felt that the Quranic con concept of Iman uh, was much stronger than that. It had a much more active sense of commitment than simply believing. And that we have, fortunately, an expression in English, keep the faith, that I felt brought across the more active force of Iman in the Quran. Something else that caught my attention was Surat al-Buruj, the mansions in the sky, which refers to the stars or constellations. And it's one of several references in the Quran to the cosmos. We also have the sun, the moon, the planets. So there's a real sense, at least in these early chapters, of the interconnectedness between humankind and the universe. So I think one of the central themes of these early suras is to try to engender that sense of wonder at one's own life and at, at the world that we live in. To Not to take it for granted, but to see it in its uh, full miraculous sense as something that exceeds our intellect's ability to explain. It goes along with the Quranic notion of Yamadin as a second creation. So the Quran is often cr criticizing those who deny the Yamadin, saying they think it's it's incredible that human beings are going to be going to be raised from the dead on a day of reckoning. And it says, "Cannot the same God that created you create you a second time?" Uh, and then it plunges us into the richness of creation. Surah 81, Surah At-Taqwir, has an extraordinarily powerful and lyrical discussion of, of the stars at night, which I find to be one of the most powerful passages in literature itself. Uh, so 
Uh, maybe I could just read a little bit from that in my translation. The overturning. In the name of God, the compassionate, the caring. When the sun is overturned and the stars fall away, when the mountains are moved, when the 10-month pregnant camels are abandoned, when the beasts of the wild are herded together, when the seas are boiled over, when the souls are coupled, when the girl child buried alive is asked what she did to deserve murder, when the pages are folded out, when the sky is flayed open, when Jahim is set ablaze, when the garden is brought near, then a soul will know what it has prepared. I swear by the stars that slide, stars streaming, stars that sweep along the sky, by the night as it slips away, by the morning when the fragrant air breathes. This is the word of a messenger and noble, empowered, ordained before the Lord of the throne, holding sway there, keeping trust. Your friend has not gone mad. He saw him on the horizon, clear. Here's a recitation of Surat al-Takhwir by Omar Hisham Arabi, a Quran reciter from Egypt who's racked up millions of listeners online. So, again, like Suratul and Fitar, it begins with the apocalyptic imagery. It has its uh, searing critique of the practice of infanticide against uh, girls. And um, it brings that question directly to each soul. And then it, uh, it swears by these natural phenomena in the most lyrical and poetic of voices. The Quran is not poetry in the sense of 
rhymed and metered discourse. It doesn't have a strict meter and its rhymes vary. But it is highly poetic. The Quran distinguishes itself from poets uh, because it says poets are inspired by hawa or desire and the Quran is huda or guidance. But it is certainly one of the most poetic of all classical texts that I know of. There's one particular surah that Professor Sells refers to often, Surat al-Qariyah. Surat al-Qariyah is a short surah. It has three verses that are very, very short that evoke the qariyah, the shaking or the quaking or the catastrophe, or the breaking apart. Uh, that is clearly a reference to the Yamadin. Then it has two verses directed once again that evoke this Yamadin, but in a very lyrical and powerful way. When speaking of uh, when human beings are like scattered moths and when uh, the mountains are like carded wool. So all security is over. And then it, it has a few verses on the scales of justice. So it says those whose scale weigh heavy, that is those who in the other surahs have qaddamat, have given forth, have uh, been generous. They will have a pleasing reception from their creator. And those whose scales weigh light, their mother will be Hawiya. And then it says, what can tell you what Hawiya is? And it says, blazing fire. Now, in uh, introductions to Islam, this is often treated as, well, this is about heaven and hell. But what's distinctive here is the fact that there's no reified hell or heaven. There's the extraordinary notion that one's mother will be how uh, how we have a kind of emptiness of falling into uh, an abyss. So the sense of one's mother is an abyss is an extraordinarily powerful image that I think goes well beyond simply threatening believers that if they're, they're not good, they'll go to hell. It also has some of the gender dynamic that I highlighted, especially around the, uh, the rhyme in Ha. Here's a recitation of Surat al-Qariya by an American girl called Maryam Masood. She's won many awards for Quran recitation, and like our previous reciter, Omar, is well known on social media. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Al-Qari'atu Mal-Qari'ah Wa ma adraka Mal-Qari'ah Yawma yakunu nnaasu kal-farashil mabthus وَتَكُونُ 
So ha can be the uh, feminine um, pronoun, ha, she, her, it. But I think the, the feminine aspect of the pronoun offer a sense of a powerful interior gender dynamic within the Quran, as if it's addressing males and females, and there's uh, even a sense of some partial personifications. That is, in Surah Al-Zalzala, the earth is presented uh, at the Yamadin as giving birth to the final news about the meaning of life. And that birth imagery is very clear, and it's aligned with the same sound patterns that we see in Surah Al-Qariya and many of the other surahs regarding the ruh and the creation of human beings. The beauty and wonder of the Quran is how it is so open to multiple interpretations, accommodating the diversity of humankind and speaking to us across time. At a Quran colloquium hosted by the Institute of Ismaili Studies in 2003, the Aga Khan, the 49th Imam of the Shia Ismaili Muslims, talked about this freedom of interpretation. This is part of an ongoing, ambitious program of Quranic studies, in which scholars from around the world, both Muslim and of other persuasions, are participating. They bring to bear a variety of academic disciplines on a reflection of how Islam's revelation, with its challenge to man's innate gift of quest and reason, became a powerful impetus for a new flowering of human civilization. This program is also an opportunity for achieving insights into how the discourse of the Quran Sharif, rich in parable and allegory, metaphor and symbol, has been an inexhaustible wellspring of inspiration, lending itself to a wide spectrum of interpretations. This freedom of interpretation is a generosity which the Quran confers upon all believers, uniting them in the conviction that all merciful Allah will forgive them if they err in their sincere attempts to understand his word. <coughs> Happily, as a result, the holy book continues to guide and illuminate the thought and conduct of Muslims belonging to different communities of interpretation and spiritual affiliation from century to century in diverse cultural environments. The Noble Quran extends its principle of pluralism also to adherents of other faiths. It affirms that each has a direction and path to which they turn, so that all should strive for good works, in the belief that Wheresoever they may be, Allah will bring them together. 
And that conference was entitled Word of God, Art of Man, the Quran and its Creative Expressions. Professor Sells traces his interest in Islam and the Quran back to when he was a student. I'd always been interested in Islamic civilization. And when I was a junior year abroad study in Europe, I went to Tunisia during a a break. And as soon as I entered the old city of Tunis, I knew I was interested in Islamic culture and civilization seriously. Ultimately, I was able to go to Tunis for three years in the Peace Corps. I taught English in a school in a small town, then a very small town in southern Tunisia called Fum Tatawin. It later became much larger, and then it became famous for Star Wars, which was filmed there. But this was before it became a a galactic force. So I was there, and I came away with a deep affection and respect for the culture and the people and the religion. And so he decided to study Islam, and that's how he developed this deep appreciation for how the Quran sounded and for how important sound is in conveying the meaning. Uh, So I decided to go to grad school, and I ended up going to the University of Chicago. There we had the the great uh, fortune of having Professor Fazlur Rahman, one of the truly great Islamic scholars of the 20th century, teaching there. And his classes consisted of the grad students sitting around, reading passages in the Quran, and then discussing them with him. And his approach was largely Quran, Lil Quran. Quran, Lil Quran, or Quran, Bil Quran, reading the Quran through the Quran. And that's where I became interested. I I started to feel I could hear these sound meaning patterns that went throughout the Quran. So these patterns that are found in some of these early Meccan surahs, like Al-Qariyah and Al-Zalzala and Surat al-Shems, which has an extraordinary opening 12 verses or so built on feminine metaphors with a have rhyme. Those patterns continue throughout later patterns of the Quran, and they create very powerful echoes. Those echoes of the sound meaning patterns create a sense of depth and dimension. Because that has a material influence on how you understand it. Yes, on the experience of the Quran, yes. The Islamic tradition has developed perhaps the widest recitation audience and uh, practitioners of any religious tradition. Now, there will be many people who read and recite the Quran that don't necessarily do it with the right intonation. It's all relative. You know, there's a tradition that says, that only God can recite Surat al-Rahman properly. I think it says that only only Jibril can recite uh, Surat Yasin properly, and only God can recite Surat al-Rahman properly. So I think everyone knows that it's the act of reading with care 
and with heart. That is important. And uh, I think that's why these online recitations of the Quran are so popular and why Quran recitations can be heard throughout the Islamic world, in the marketplace, in taxis, in buses, uh, because it's an active listening that goes throughout life. A new edition of Michael Sells's book is out next month. Muslim Footprints is developed and produced by Kalama Communications in partnership with The Ismaili. Our theme tune is Mola Mama John, performed by Black Heat. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do tap the follow or subscribe button. It's free and it tells us that people are listening. My name is Aisha Dyer and you've been listening to Muslim Footprints.